All right. Hey, um, welcome, Door of Hope, uh, to Body Life. Uh, you know, this has been such a cool... Uh, Mel was saying to me the other night, it's like, there's, there's a, a real spirit of just a longing to be, um, I think, within the community, to be knit together in a, in a common vision um, and a common dream. The reason that we've been doing this is there's just so many new people that have um, come to Door of Hope in the last few years. And we forget, you know, you spend 14 years fleshing out doctrine and positions and what are, what, what are we about as a church and, and what is our mission and vision. And you forget that you're constantly bringing in new people that are stepping into the story, you know, midstream. And especially after, after the pandemic, uh, there is like a sense of rebuilding and it's a different church. Um, and which is something that's interesting is something I, I kind of grieved for a while, but now I, I celebrate the fact that there is a continuum of God's hand upon this church. And there is a new community of people that are hungry to meet Jesus. And the reminder also that even for those that have moved away and moved on, that Door of Hope has had an impact in people's lives and hopefully they're carrying that, the heart of the cross and Jesus to the communities that they're now in. And for those that have walked away from their faith, I pray that there's been seeds planted that they can't get far, like the message I gave today, that they, they built on the right foundation their house is just a little, their structure's not doing so well. <laughs> and so, uh, but this is, a, this is a, a topic that, here, this is how, how unfortunate the, the topic of um, men and women uh, and their roles in ministry and where Door of Hope has landed uh, is I was gone for a month in 2016 um, and there, uh, we, had we had worked for a year creating kind of a doctor, a position paper, actually that Tim Mackey, um, the head of the Bible Project, uh, kind of led the way in, in putting together kind of our position paper, kind of picking my brain, uh, taught, wrestling through it as elders, uh, and because Dora Hope has always been a church that's kept the cross so central that inevitably we've drawn from a lot of different streams. And so people come in with, already with kind of in place theological grids uh, and expectations. So you had some people that came in from egalitarian churches. It's like, like, why aren't there women? Like, why do you even have elders? Why don't you just have, you know, men and women leadership team over the whole thing? Uh, there's other people like, why isn't there like a regular woman preaching? Then there are people like, like, you're never going to have a woman preach, are you? Because I need to know beforehand because I'm going to have to leave. I mean, and I had women and men say that to me. Uh, and so you know, you start feeling that pressure. And then on top of that, we were a church in the early days that was so young. So I, it was like every kid that like moved to Portland that started PSU and took their first ever feminism class. And then the ne next thing they got guns blazing. And there was, a, there was a couple years where this particular topic was so exhausting to me. I'm like, I'm like I don't even have it in me. I'm like, I don't, I don't even, Tim, you take it. I'm like, in fact, you present it to the church when I'm in New York, because I don't even want to be there. Um, and, and unfortunately, that was a complete misstep. And, and, it, and I think that night, from what I've been told, that, you know, that wasn't Tim's, that wasn't right for me to put that on Tim. Tim's a, a Bible teacher. He wasn't the lead pastor. That was something that should have come from me, and it didn't. Um, it should have been something that him and I did together. And I just remember him saying, don't you ever do that to me again. 
<laughs> Josh White. And, um, and it was, and it got, and I even think it got, that some of it got heated. Were any of you there at that conversation? I think a few. <laughs> Brett was. Um, so, um, so I want to just begin. I have the lovely Brett Way here, um, who is going to be um, kind of sharing kind of her journey in this conversation as she's joined the preaching cohort. Um, and, you know, multiple women came to me and said after Brett had taught at a women's event the first time, like, you need to hear Brett teach. And so they sent me her teaching. And, uh, um, and I always joke that, um, uh, that Brett and I are kind of kindred spirits, which is the only reason that Evan can, only Evan could handle working alongside me. Uh, for 13 years and not abandon, abandon me because he, he gets my temperament. Uh, and, um, and I was so excited when I heard the teaching and I was like, dang, it's focused. It was Jesus-centered. Uh, it, it, it just was good. It's good teaching. Um, and so I invited her into that group. And, but Brett actually had a lot of reservations about where she stood um, in regards to uh, how do I feel about preaching to men and women and, and what do we do with certain passages uh, that seem to be a prohibition against that? And so we just began to wrestle through that together. And so I'm gonna walk you through something that I walked her through that was very helpful for me. So when, just to be clear on my background, first of all, I did not grow up in a, uh, in a normal family upbringing. So I didn't grow up with strong male role model. I, I always was a mama's boy. I liked dancing and singing. My best friends were always girls. I mean, I was the kid who, you know, if I'd been in high school today, they would have been like, you, yeah, you probably, you've got to, you need to just come out. And, uh, um, and I was that kid. I was just an arty kid. And my main influences, my main, my main sources of, of comfort and uh, even authority in my life were women my mom and my Nana. So I don't come from this like bias, like, like hyper-masculinity. You know, I, in all honesty, the whole reason I even started getting tattoos is I was so terribly picked on as a kid and lived with so much constant fear that I started getting tattoos to make myself look tougher. That was the whole reason. I, I, <laughs> and then I just couldn't stop. And that, that's another, you know, problem altogether, but that has nothing to do with women. Um, so my, my point is this, is that when I got saved, I got saved at 26. I didn't have like some theological grid around men and women and God's design. And what is the, the one man, one woman marriage? My wife and I, you know, we moved in together before we were married. We were, we were total pagans. And Darcy uh, she came from a family with a father who was always on the road and whose mom was kind of like the powerhouse who led everything. And so Darcy is like, she is, we're both type A's, but I'm a type A and a creative. She is like a type A driver. And so we were, we're the perfect, like, uh, we're the perfect couple that would, you know, in, before we were believers that would have been like the poster children for like an egalitarian relationship where Darcy really wore the pants and I was like the rebellious kid, you know, that she was always trying to like, why did I fall in love with this guy? Like I married a boy. Um, and so when we got saved for us, both of us, something shifted in the order of things. Uh, and, it, and it was, Brett and I were just talking about, there's some things that you just kind of know intuitively before you can explain it logically. And this was one of those things where 
I had a gut level reaction um, when I got saved. And one of the things that was the turning point for Darcy coming to faith was when I actually stepped up to the plate and became a man and said, I'm gonna be a provider, I'm gonna be a protector, we're gonna have a family, and, we're, and, and, I, and it was weird because Darcy, who's so strong and so like naturally will just be like, don't you tell me what to do. Um, it was like she just, it's like she had been waiting for me to step into that role. And she wouldn't have been able to define that either. And the moment I stepped into that role was the moment she began to open up. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like being domineering, like I'm making the decisions now, woman. I'm just saying like, I became responsible. I began to engage in the conversations with how are we running the household? What are things that I can do to make things easier? She's like, I wanna have kids, but I, I want to be home with our kids and right now I'm the main breadwinner. What are you gonna do about that? I mean, so there was a massive shift and when she got saved, she said it felt the most powerful thing was the peace that I felt when I actually felt like I could trust you to lead. And I wouldn't even have known to use that language lead. And what I mean by lead is more by, I we entered into a real partnership, not her behind my back quietly helping me fulfill my dreams, uh, no, her alongside me and me alongside her and me playing the role that God has given me as a man and her playing the role that God has given her as a woman in our marriage. And so for us, the biblical concept of mutual submission um, and then the challenges that specifically Paul seems to address in regards to women submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, it's not that Darcy doesn't need to love me and I don't need to submit to her. Paul is focusing in on where there's going to be tension is what he's doing. Uh, it, that became a turning point. And so that began a journey, but I got into church ministry where it was, it was um, they were more traditionally hierarchical. And I didn't like what I saw when it came to the relationship of men and women in ministry in the churches that I was a part of before I started Door of Hope. And the thing that I saw often was that in hardline, they're called complementarian roles, which is women do not have any, um, any leadership part in regards to leading men and women. They're only allowed to do ministry with women. That's Calvary Chapel's stance historically. Um, but what I saw was it was an unspoken submissiveness that went beyond scripture often in which the women, um, the wives of the pastors were, uh, they, they were so submissive, it was like hard to even get a read on their personalities. And so I always joke, I use the, the term Stepford wife, you know, the, that idea of like, where it just feels like almost culty, like, and, and Darcy was viewed in the churches that I worked at as, um, you know, you love your wife well, but you're not leading her well because, you know, she's got opinions. Um, I'm like, well, your wife doesn't have opinions. That doesn't sound like a wife. That sounds like a, that sounds like a doll. I don't know what that is. That doesn't sound like a human being to me. Like I kind of need my wife to be like, you're being stupid. Stop being stupid. And she still does that. And she does that in a very submissive way. Don't be dumb. I'll seriously punch you in the face. <laughs> she doesn't say that. Um, 
but she would if she needed to, and I appreciate that. Uh, my point is this, is that I started seeing, I sense that I'm like, I believe in, a, in an order, a distinction between men and women. I see it, I, I, I see it when it's done right, but I also see the abuses of it, and I've seen the abuses both ways. I've seen the impacts of, of an extreme egalitarian stance that eradicates all distinctions between men and women, uh, and it gets weird real fast. But I've also seen how weird it gets when you have, you have men in an authoritative role that actually pushes women into kind of the quiet, submissive, like seen but not heard kind of position, which is insane. So what do we do? So this was the question. So I came from, I'm like, like, I don't know. I read the Calvary Chapel is very like, here's what the text says. The, the more of the, um, uh, they definitely move more toward a kind of a wooden literalism approach to scriptural interpretation. Um, there's also an incredible distrust of, of all academics um, and even of seminary. And, and some of that is well-founded, but not all of it. And it can lead to, um, to an oversimplification and what I call a selective sanctification or selective interpretation. So men love hardline uh, uh, complementarians, love to utilize that passage. I do not permit a woman to, uh, to have authority over a man or I do not permit a woman to teach a man to exercise authority. And they're like, see, right there, you cannot do that. But they don't recognize that the passage right before that says, I command that men everywhere pray with hands lifted. So if you're going to take a wooden literal approach to every text, you better be freaking consistent, is my point. So if I'm gonna say that to the ladies, then they better see me every time I pray going like this. And so this is, the, this is the thing. We're like, well, that seems silly. That seems like, well, no, it's not. That's the approach. So that I started to feel uncomfortable with the position that I had been taught. And this led to where we land. So here's the three illustrations. So there, I believe there are three positions, one of them being where Door of Hope lands, that I see kind of exercise in the church today. The first is this. It is that hierarchical approach. Um, and this approach in church, and I'm speaking, I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about church, but it applies to marriage as well. And it's just the, the relationship between men and women in a community. The first approach is a hierarchical. And I would represent this by a march. A march is the man is in front, he's the captain. The Eve was taken out of his back, Adam's back, not his side. <laughs> and she is called to follow behind in a, in, in, a, in a march, a submissiveness march. You just, you just do, man was made in the image of God, woman was made in the image of man. That's like, I'm like, that's not what Genesis 1 says, by the way. It says men and women are image bearers of God. Together, they image God. And woman was taken out of the side of man, but both were breathed, God breathed. What makes men and women unique and image bearers is not that man was made from dust or that woman was made from man. It's that God breathed his breath into them, that they become image bearers of him. So that hierarchical approach is a, is a march. And that is a classic, that's a classic approach that you often see in more 
extremely conservative churches where the only role that a woman's allowed to have in the church uh, is, is the office of secretary, essentially in kids' ministry. Uh, that's not where Dwarfo plans. The second approach that we reject is what I would call a true egalitarian stance. And now egalitarian, there are many people under the egalitarian and the hierarchical, they still sit under the umbrella of orthodoxy, they're brothers and sisters. I have friends in both of these worlds um, and, 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 I, and this is one of those areas where Paul says, let each person be convinced in their own mind uh, and this is one of those non-essentials. This is not an issue to divide on, but it is an important issue. And I think it actually affects a lot of other issues in the church. But the egalitarian one is often driven uh, by, um, by conversations, cultural conversations that have only been going on really for about 150 years and are driven by, and actually were birthed out of the church. If, in case you guys didn't know, the, suff uh, uh, the suffragette movement was, was birthed out of the church. Uh, and the gospel has always been about um, being a voice for the oppressed, uh, being a voice for, for the unheard. Uh, and what began as actually a legitimate concern uh, became a movement that got so much, uh, so much motion behind it that, it that by the middle of the 20th century, it was hitting the point where the questions around, is there any difference between men and women? And, and that influence on the church over the last, specifically, I would say, over the last 20 years within evangelicalism has been extremely powerful, especially in a city. I mean, if you go to Yelp reviews for Door of Hope right now, there are people that give reviews that have never even stepped foot in our church because of uh, we have male elders. And they're like, male-only elders? What year is this? You know, it's just like, how archaic. Um, and And they're making massive assumptions as if the elders in this church don't have wives and don't talk to women <laughs> and they're as if there's no input um, or any kind of it so all that to say that egalitarian I would say is if the hierarchical is is kind of uh, imaged by a march this would be this would be uh, demonstrated by a race and this is where there is a competition between the sexes and that competition creates unbelievable tension. And we see it in our culture. You don't have to be a Christian to feel the, the competitive nature of, of an egalitarian thrust, which is let, is let us eradicate all distinctions. That we don't need men to be chivalrous. We don't need them to open the door for us. We like that Disney is rewriting every single classic movie to eradicate the, the, the knight in shining armor. We don't want that anymore. We don't need it. It's like, it's like Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec. You know, she was always, she was the ultimate person. Like, I can do anything a man can do. Um, and that, and, and that, that eradication of distinction actually fights against the God-given order and the beauty of those distinctions. There's distinction in the Godhead itself. So to me, it falls unbelievably short, even as we image God. Now, keep in mind, this is most of the evangelical churches in Portland, in the city proper right now, are moving or have already moved egalitarian. And I would, and, and these are my friends that are making these moves. So this is, this is a, a challenge for us. We're like, how are we gonna, are we gonna, you know, 
my point is this, if you land egalitarian and that is a hill you're gonna die on, um, I just want you to know, I respect that, but that's not where Dora Pope is. And, and if that's a hill that you will die on, if it actually affects your ability to receive the gospel, then, then I, I would encourage you to find a church that actually keeps you from being distracted from the gospel. Um, uh, and, but I would also ask you to examine why you hold that to that conviction as well. Because I believe that the reason churches are moving toward an egalitarian stance, I, my conviction is that it has much less to do with, with Bible interpretation and far more to do with cultural pressure. That's my personal conviction, and I stand by it. So the third position, which is where Door of Hope lands, is traditionally been called soft complementarian. I hate that phrase. I don't like complementarian. That was a term that was actually created um, by Dave Grudem and John Piper um, and was first put forth in, his, in Grudem's systematic theology, and I don't think it's helpful. I actually don't use the word um, complementarian to describe Door of Hope. Soft complementarian is, uh, it would, complementarian and hierarchical to me are the same thing. Soft complementarian is the idea that men are, are alone hold the office of elder, but that men and women are equally gifted by the spirit. And that, that means that there could be women teachers, women preachers, women prophets, all, but they are under the covering and the authority of the elders, which is where we land um, as door, at Door of Hope. And this is, but what this means is that because we believe there are only two offices in scripture, elder and deacon, and that elder is an office reserved for men, godly men, they're almost like spiritual fathers in the church, that the, that the responsibility then is that no man, I don't exercise authority over you when I preach. I am exercising under the authority of the elder board. Now I am an elder, and I, am, and I am functioning within my elder role, which is why we believe that an elder will always be the primary teaching voice within the church, but that there will be other voices, um, men and women who are not elders, who God has gifted. That is where we've landed. So you will be asking the question, I'm sure, well, why have we not used a woman to preach yet on a Sunday morning? And I would just simply say this, so you, you don't, to save you the question, is that, most of my conversations in the 14 years of Door of Hope, when it has been brought, first of all, you had me and Tim Mackey. You had Tim Mackey, my wife would often say this when girls would be really intense about this, like, she's like, you have one of the best Bible expositors in the world. Like, why does it matter whether you hear from a man or woman? I wanna hear from whoever is best equipped to preach the gospel. That's, that's, that's what I'm, I'm interested Now, the best pushback I have received, it generally does not come from a biblical grid. It comes from a, well, I want this because it seems weird to not ever have female representation from the teaching pulpit. I, the reason I have not moved there yet is because every woman in the past that we've had and this is this actually heartbreakingly is true that have been that have been teaching voices and have desired to have that almost every one of them uh, and there's I can think of two specific women that were very capable and very involved have actually abandoned their faith totally due to this issue was the breaking point and to me that is a revelation of the wrong 
desire to be in the pulpit, the wrong desire. The motivation was not driven by a biblical conviction that God has called me to do this, but in a, it was in a deep commitment uh, to, to, a cultural, to a cultural voice that they had, they had bought fully. Um, and have since completely walked away from their faith altogether. And, and that's heartbreaking to me. And so for me, I'm like, I will, I will put a woman in the pulpit when, when the right woman comes. And I think that that person has come in Brett. Um, and that is why she will be preaching for the next seven weeks straight. <laughs> no, <I'm joking. laughs> and I'm going on vacation back to Crete. Um, uh, no. Um, so so just here where I'm standing. So this is the language I like to use. Instead of complementarian, I've adopted, I haven't even shared this with the elders. I'm gonna share it with you now, elders. And you, and you can, you can uh, override it because it's just a word. But I like the word covenantal. To me, covenantal is, is a picture of men and women in covenant relationship, just as God is in a covenant relationship with us and God is, and within that covenantal relationship, there are different, there are different roles. And all of us have different roles within the church. That's what, we're all different parts of the body of Christ. And that's not a bad thing. Um, it is our covetous nature that always desires to have or to do or to be what someone else is. Um, and what we need to be is we need to actually not allow culture to define our minds and our hearts. And that's why I've not been afraid to say no up to this point, because I'm not, I'm not going to be pressured by culture, but I will be pressured by the Bible. Um, and that is something that we all should be pressured by. So I just wanted to lay out a groundwork. So we're not hierarchical. I don't believe women are there to just serve quietly men. Uh, we're, not, we're not egalitarian. I don't believe that men and women have no differences at all or no distinctions. And I don't believe in a competitive nature between the sexes. I think that's really damaging. Uh, but by the way, I did receive a long email in regards to, uh, we do not at Door of Hope um, uh, believe that pastor is a office. That is something that specifically the American church um, applied. Uh, Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5 is the only chapter where it talks about God has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, preachers, and teachers, or pastors and teachers. Pastor actually is only used three times in the New Testament, and it means shepherd, um, or shepherd, and it, and, and it, it is used two of the three to describe Jesus. We see pastoring as a spiritual gift, not an office. The only offices that we recognize at Door of Hope is elder and deacon. Elders are men, deacons are men and women, uh, pastor is a spiritual gift that can be given to man, men and women. That's where we land as a church, just in case you want, are, are curious um, and to answer. And I appreciated that, the, the long message. And I agree with the long email, if you're here uh, tonight, that, um, that there is a lot of cultural pressure to collapse on these things. And that's something we are committed to not doing, <laughs> but we are committed to honoring scripture and honoring men and women gifted by the Holy Spirit. Um, so with that, Hi, everyone. Okay. This is who you really came to hear. Um, so, so, Brett, I want to ask you um, uh, kind of the first question. Oh, by the way, I didn't say this. This is really important. If the one is illustrated by a march, the second is illustrated by a race, the position that we hold is illustrated 
in my mind by a dance, which I really like being a kid that liked dancing. And if you think about ballroom dancing, because I know so many of you watch it all the time. Um, it, the beautiful thing about ballroom dancing is someone is leading, but it's impossible to tell who. Um, there is a symmetry and a synergy um, in the best dancers that, that I think is, is actually a beautiful picture of a biblical vision of the relationship between men and women, not just in marriage, but in community as well. Um, so that's the dance, the race, the march. We're dancers at Door of Hope. I'm ready to dance. You're ready to dance. Okay. Uh, Brett, um, as it's become clear that God has gifted you as a teacher, I want you to talk about um, your journey toward the position that Door of Hope has landed on in regards to women teaching men and women under the covering of the elders. And what are the texts that have been the biggest hangups? Okay. So... Two things, just for the sake of clarity, I do like your language, but I am gonna use soft complementarianism and complementarianism and egalitarianism, just so we all know where I came from. Um, and also I have a ton of notes and I am going to use them. So please forgive me, I've been consuming so much information over the past few months that I just, I need my notes. Um, anyway. So I came from a position that was probably more hard complementarianism as of just maybe four to six months ago. Um, I, my personal position is I've never had a, really a problem with authority and I just feel so passionate about the Bible and God saving me and Jesus being my savior, my friend, my everything, that I felt like if I have a limitation, I don't really care. That's how I felt. I was, I don't understand it. I hadn't taken the time to dive into it. But from a personal level, just so you can understand my mindset, that wasn't a problem for me. Um, but a little over a year ago, I started speaking at the women's events, and I also was asked to speak at church in the park. And the opportunity came, whether I wanted it or not, and I actually do love teaching a lot. And so suddenly I had to wrestle with, is it appropriate for me to teach in a, to a mixed congregation? Which is really the linchpin that would separate maybe Door of Hope from other churches. Um, so I actually have come around and I have changed my mind through lots of prayer, lots of reading, lots of Bible reading, um, and fully agree, accept, and I do feel like the door of hope position is absolutely biblical, um, which is very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, it, it, but it was actually it was a very hard process because I am also terrified of pride and I would never want to do something out of pride because I'm afraid of pride. Um, so the journey, how I came to this was first I had to work through the last part of Josh's question is what are our, what are the most difficult verses um, or the texts that are the biggest hangups? I'm going to, I'm gonna address those at the end of this answer, but obviously 
there are two texts, one in 1 Timothy and one in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians that seem very clear at face value that say a woman should not teach. If you are just to read them uh, as they are, as they sit, just to yourself, you would come to the conclusion that I should not be able to preach on a Sunday. And that to me was enough. So I had to really dig in and research those texts. Um, and once I did, uh, I did feel compelled and a conviction that um, they're not as simple as they seem. And we'll revisit that in a minute. Um, the second thing that actually really began to change my mind to um, a more soft complementarian view um, was looking at the Bible as a whole and women in the church as a whole throughout the history, not only in biblical history, but the history of the Christian church and seeing that there have been women who've been called forward and have had held positions of authority um, and I just couldn't escape them. So one would be Deborah, who's the only female judge during the time of judges. Um, she was a prophetess and also a judge. And she used to sit, they called it the, the palm of Deborah. And the Israelites would line up and she would judge uh, anything that needed, uh, just the Lord put her in a place of leadership and put her in a place where her wisdom and leadership skills were used. And at that time in Judges, the judges were civil leaders, but they're also militaristic leaders. So if you go read Judges 4 and 5, the story of Deborah is absolutely compelling. It totally blows my mind. She's an amazing woman. Um, and I wanted to read an excerpt from um, Judges 5. So Judges 4 is the story of Deborah. Judges 5 is the same story but retold in a poetic form. And um, it's called The Song of Deborah and Barak. Um, and in the second verse of Judges 5, it says, Oh, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. And when it's talking about the leaders, it's talking about Deborah and Barak. And because of their work and what they did together, um, it led to 40 years of peace after Israel had been constantly attacked and subjugated by the Canaanites for 20 years. And because Deborah and Barak worked together through her leadership and she had been appointed judge by the Lord, they brought peace. And I couldn't escape that. So I have specific verses from Paul in Timothy and Corinthians that are giving very specific parameters, but then I'm looking at stories of very particular, and it's not as common, but women who are called to positions of leadership who do have authority, um, it doesn't change that there's a distinction between men and women, but she was a leader. She spoke, she was not silent. 
she had authority that was given by God. So looking at the entire framework, that started to unravel the literalism in which I took these two trouble passages. Um, and then in that same vein, just very recently, just starting to study female heroes of the faith, not in biblical history, but just in the history of the Christian church and realizing when there have been women who have submitted them, their whole selves to God, the work they have done to promote the name of Jesus and the difference that they have made and the people that have been saved because these women didn't care about egalitarianism. They cared about following God. Um, and two people who really blew my mind, there's just two examples. Elizabeth Elliot, everybody, everyone knows Elizabeth Elliot. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, if you don't know, please look it up. You probably all do. Um, her husband, Jim Elliot, they, they were going to be missionaries in Ecuador. He went first and established a connection, a, rela a, a relationship with an unreached people group, a tribe. And the first meeting went really well. The second meeting, he and his group were attacked and killed. And she had not arrived yet. Um, and her response was she continued to move forward, learn the language. And she, a woman, and another woman, the sister of one of the initial missionaries who'd been killed, they both learned the language. At that time, she was a widow and had a daughter. So it was two women and a toddler. They learned the language and by themselves went back to the village and were the primary missionaries. And they were the teachers. They were the leaders and they had authority in that context. Um, and they, because it was just them, they didn't have a man to go with them. It was just them. Many people came to faith in that unreached people group. And then when she came back, she became um, an adjunct professor at Gordon um, Conwell Theological Seminary. And then in the late 70s, I did not know this, she was one of the contributors contributors for the NIV Bible. And so if you read the NIV, you are reading contributions from a professor, from a woman. Um, and that is a position of leadership. Um, the other woman that's really blowing my mind, a lot of ladies are reading this book right now and I highly recommend it. Mary Gee, she wrote God Guides and she was a missionary in India for 38 years. And she is the gentlest spirit. And there is no part of her that is thinking about promoting herself for the sake of equality. She mostly ministered to young women. She ran a school. Um, but simply because she stepped out in faith constantly, she ministered to men also, because if there was a need, if there was a man who needed something, they knew they could go to her. Her stories are incredible. 
she ends up changing entire villages, so much so that she's, her way of evangelizing, she's asked to train other missionaries because they see that this is um, working. And then she, there's this one story where she casually talks about, there's a meeting at the local church. There is a deacon at the local church who's very loud and obnoxious and he's kind of trying to get all this power and they don't know what to do. They're like, we can't, this guy's influenced the congregation, but he seems really like a wolf in, sh you know, in sheep's clothing. And she comes up with an idea to sort of control this guy and it totally works. And then she just drops like right in the middle of the story. She's like, and as I was an elder at the church, and I was like, what? Because she was a missionary for the Reformed Church of America. So like, um, just seeing that was another turning point for me is that I cannot deny that whether or not someone's specific doctrine is fully fleshed out or not, and I think it should be, this is in no way an excuse for us not to do this. Door of Hope needs to come to a very clear, very concise, uh, communicable position because we have to find a way that the church functions in society. That's not bad. But what I'm saying is the, the foundation needs to be that we're stepping out in submission to Jesus always. And so if there's a woman who is completely, utterly submitted to Christ and there is something for her to do, I don't think it is to always stay silent. And that has really changed me as well. Um, so now that you see sort of what has influenced me to change and reconsider these very hard passages, I'm really quickly going to read them and make us all very uncomfortable. <laughs> once you read it, can you tell us how women are saved through childbirth? Because oh it's I, just really been weighing on me. I just, and it I, doesn't seem fair. <laughs> I Nobody has a good answer on that, that text, by the way. The first Timothy passage. <laughs> um, so these are these are the passages that um, I wrestled with. These are passages that all three positions wrestle with. That I would invite you to wrestle with, um, because they're wild. They make us uncomfortable. Um, but the Bible's going to do that, and that's okay. Um, so the first passage that people is really hard. Hold on, I have to find it, sorry. Is it the, oh yeah, yeah, okay. So we've got in 1 Corinthians 14, as in all churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Um, this, yep. act <laughs> this actually is the easier of the two passages <laughs> and even hard complementarians. I mean, you would have to be way, way, almost a fundamentalist churches follow this. Um, even complementarians see within the context that there's something going 
really awry in the church of Corinth. So read 1 Corinthians. What you will see is that there was a lot of chaos and there were women prophetesses who were speaking out of turn, speaking loudly, um, being very disruptive. And that probably the biggest thing I think in both passages that's really important um, is the, is this, Paul is addressing voices that are challenging authority. Mm -hmm. They're challenging, and this has actually happened in Dora Pope as well. The most disruptive voices, both men and women, are those that come into the church with a desire to change the church's authority structure or positions. Uh, and they do it through communicating with multiple people in the church and complaining about a particular position, never coming to the elders and stirring up issues. And I believe that that is at the core. Don't think of this as, because there's clearly women speaking in churches in, in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and this is something that Brett and I walked through. I'm like, there is a context and these are real churches that Paul is writing to with real problems. And he is addressing those real problems. We need to be able to sort out what is the issue versus what is the universal truth yeah. in the text. Yeah. So yeah, just so you guys, if you want to hear it, that's 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 35. Please look into that. It's really fascinating. And that is actually, uh, that passage is less controversial because it becomes clear pretty quickly that this is a specific um, issue. But if you look into it, then you can learn more about like, um, you know, let them ask their husbands at home. That's like, learn about that too. We don't have time to go into it. Yep. Um, the harder passage, honestly, and this, Josh and I had to work through this a lot because I was like, I only want to do what God wants me to do. And if he says for me to not teach, then I'm not going to do it. And I, that's what I want. I want the, what the Lord wants. Um, so 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 13 is a difficult passage, but it's verses 11 and 12. It says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. For I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And this contextually, finding the contextual problem has been harder. And this is why this one verse has separated the churches into three distinct categories, essentially. Um, uh, and of course, where we stand is the gifts are given to all, men and women, and women may teach. Um, so again, and it's for the same reason, there is a historical contextual, contextual application of this verse at the time, um, but it's not as obvious and it's harder to find. So actually, I really would encourage, and something that helped me a lot, and that has influenced, I know you, and also Dora Pope. Please, please look up John Stott's commentary on 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Um, we, he goes through verse by verse to help explain the historical context. Also, he was heavily influenced by a book that I'm in the middle of reading uh, called I Suffer Not a Woman by Richard and Kathleen Clark Kroger, 
And it is an entire book on those verses. And it is truly compelling. Um, I, we don't have time to go into it. What we do have time tonight is to declare that where Door of Hope stands is these are contextual, ver contextual verses that have to do with a historical problem in the church at the time. And, um, and we do not apply that to how we practically run the church. Um, I think we should go into detail and explore it. But I, we obviously don't have time to go through a book's worth of information on like five verses. Um, so for me, that's my journey, is I had to deal with these verses. I have become convinced that there is a historical element in the time that Paul is addressing. Yeah. I was not convinced of it. <gasps> I broke three iPads in the last year. Oh my gosh. And I'm, and I'm sorry. You're so nervous, Josh. I, <laughs> I don't like this conversation. I'm going home right um, now. I was not convinced of that probably four months ago. And then also looking at the history in the Bible of women and the history of women in the church mm -hmm. has changed my mind to understand that there's more to the story than the literalism from two passages. However, that does not mean that there is not a distinction between men and women, yep. and that the concept of authority and submissiveness do not exist. They do exist. And that is something for me, it's inescapable. If you look at, the, if you look at women throughout the Bible, you'll find that women have held leadership roles, can be teachers, prophetesses, evangelists, but if you also look at the entirety of the Bible, you cannot escape that there are different roles for different people, not even just men and women, but different people. And those include a relationship that in nature is submissive and authoritative. And that's why I'm not egalitarian because I can't escape it. I see it woven into the Trinity and I, and I see it woven into Christ and how he relates to the Father, and I see it woven in how, to the, how the church relates to Christ. And that is doctrine that I don't think you can turn, to, turn a blind eye to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I point out to Brad, I think this is really important. First of all, the, the, that position on that, that text is, if you notice, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over um, over a man. And I think that this is important that you can see Paul is addressing something that once again is pushing at, at leadership. And when I preach, the, see the, the initial thought is often that people think, well, you're the preacher, so you're the one exercising authority, but I'm not. I, we actually have, this is why we're not, why I left Calvary Chapel. I don't believe in the Moses model because the Moses model sets me up as the final word. Um, I hire and fire who I want. I don't answer to anybody, but God is kind of the rule of thumb. And sadly, this is one of the, um, the excesses actually that kind of, that I, I would say kind of is, was birthed out of the charismatic movement, which is the experience and hearing from God was far more important than, um, than from people. And so that kind of individualistic approach to leadership. But the challenge of that, the Moses model, is it actually creates an even greater um, threat toward a hierarchical sort of position 
um, because then I am the sole authority and there would be no possibility of anyone else preaching, uh, which it, you don't want one person to be the sole authority. You should never trust any single human being uh, to be a sole authority over a community. Uh, this is why Mars Hill blew up, is that Mark Driscoll began to believe that his authority actually was more important, more prophetic, more reaching than the very elders that were put over him. And he actually put himself from underneath the elders and created his own little supergroup team that would say yes to everything. It blew up the entire ministry. We preach, we believe that the authority is exercised by the elders and we believe that the one thing you can't escape in scripture is again and again, the elders are established in the text as men, uh, husbands of one wife, uh, known in the church and known for their servant leadership. This isn't men exercising their masculinity. This isn't a toxic masculinity. Listen, there is a pushback against the Bible as a whole right now in our current cultural climate that says, why should you trust any book that's just written by a bunch of white men? Well, I'm like, well, they're Middle Easterners. I don't, I'm not sure that they're totally white. Um, I feel like that's a bit of a stretch, but, but this is the narrative right now this is the narrative actually against Western civilization right now uh, in our current movement of critical theory that has actually infiltrated the universities, but it's infiltrating the church. And it's specifically infiltrating our understanding of gender, for sure. I mean, that we, this, is, this, this issue is so important um, in that we actually reflect, actually one of the reasons I want the church to hear from a woman under the covering of the elders is because I want the church to have reflected to it the beauty of two genders, because that's all that exists, by the way. Um, and, and I think that in, to be able to state that without, I'm not gonna collapse under the pressure of something that actually atheists now, scientists are finding themselves on the same team as churches um, because they're saying the science isn't backing the narrative. And when Richard Dawkins is now a friend of Christianity because he's pushing back on the, on the agenda, that's a crazy thing. So I believe this is actually an important thing for one of the ways that we can actually model the beauty and the power of the two sexes within the church and the, and the uniqueness and the God-given design that it is the man and woman together that actually model the, um, the image of God. And so I believe here that you can't escape that, that, that there is something happening and exercising of authority is very different than teaching. And it's funny that those that would generally say a woman cannot teach on a Sunday, but they generally will let women teach kids and even high school. You'll often find in hard complementarian churches, they'll still have women youth pastors. But technically, like once a boy is 15 and a girl is 15, I mean 13, you're like they're entering adulthood. There is an exercising of authority um, over what would be technically young adults. Um, and so we're just so inconsistent. So my thing is let's be consistent. Let's, let's hold to what we know. We know there are two offices. We see very clear parameters on those offices. And even those offices as elders, elders are, should be informed by deep relationships with men and women in the church. Uh, that, that we're so afraid of someone representing us. I'm like, I don't want a man to represent me. Like my wife's like, I am happy for you to represent me to the church because I trust you. 
because I know that you listen to me and I know that you care about my input. Um, I never go to an elder meeting without that voice as a part of the instruction. This isn't about, this is just a men's club up here and we're gonna make decisions for women. Like we don't make decisions for women without female input, first of all. Um, when it comes to women's ministry, we let women lead that ministry. But even in regards to the church as a whole, we want input from both men and women. Not every guy in the church is an elder, there's only a handful of them. So that wouldn't be fair to all the men either. If, if we're gonna actually apply that kind of logic, uh, there's, there is a small group of people that are representative um, and are called to be the covering of the whole church. Um, and that's why we should pick our elders carefully. It's also why you should know your elders and why we should be in close relationship as a church community together. Um, I wanna just, uh, I think we should open this up to questions because I feel like we just covered so much. Um, and, uh, uh, and I wanna, I do wanna ask you that this was, um, uh, this was one, one question you said, I hope we get to it. So I'll just skip to it. Um, I, I said, how much, uh, how much of the pushback against the idea of difference and distinctions and roles has to do with culture rather than biblical interpretation. Okay, I might just go straight from my notes, okay. if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Just imagine I'm not reading this. Imagine I've studied this and I'm orating with great power and not looking down at me. You are doing better than me tonight. I feel like I'm shooting not on all. <laughs> All pistons tonight. Um, <laughs> so this actually kind of jumps off of what Josh was saying. Uh, this is an important topic for us, I think, to explore with great conviction and also great excitement because if there is something that comes from the mind of God, then it is good. And we can rest in that. Um, I'm just gonna lead with that. So I do think, I think we're in a historical moment of the erasure of the differences and distinctions between the sexes, and I think it is absolutely primarily fueled by our culture. If you have no outside influence defining who you are, then you must define it for yourself. Um, for Christians, we look to God to define us. He defines us as humans, he defines our uh, physical being, our spiritual beings, as men and as women, and because it is from the mind of a good and holy God, we accept that our design is good. And that is our primary value as Christians, would be to submit to and to glorify the God who designed us and made us. But if you have no outside source to define you, and you live in our secular Western culture right now, the primary value of our society is to discover your true nature for yourself. And that's, we're seeing this play out in real time. Um, you have to discover your true nature and then you must declare your true nature and then you must have that nature or identity confirmed by those around you for value. And I'm not, I'm just trying to understand present this coming from another point of view. Um, so if it is up to you to find your nature, your identity, um, it's a primary objective to see how you fit into the world, 
How do you fit in here? How do, we ex how do I exist in this place? I need to find out and then I need to present it and then I need to live this truth. Um, and then of course the obvious consequences, any distinction or difference or even what were once accepted definitions are abandoned because they're seen as prisons uh, that control you from the outside and misrepresent you. Um, but, and this is where the church can step in, I think with a lot of hope. True freedom does indeed come from an identity outside of yourself. The fact that you are lovingly created by God in his image, male and female, he created them in his image. And he loves you so much that he himself died for you in the person of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing you can do to change that identity. Your identity is that you are lovingly created. That identity is set. It was set before the foundations of the world and it doesn't come from you. It's from outside of you. And that truth will give you more freedom because you are loved no matter what than anything that you can conjure up from within yourself. So I think what the church can offer is the endless pursuit of finding yourself is a false paradigm. We just need to let people know that they need to be found yes. by God. Yep. Yeah. And that's why we're gonna have her teach. <laughs> um, I wanna, I wanna jump into some questions and I wanna start with the most, um, and, and sorry, this is such an important topic. I, I, it was very important for me to, to open up with where our, our position even is. And uh, as the lead pastor of the church, that is something you need to hear from me. But it's, I also think it's very important that you hear from a woman on how, how do we actually, how, is, how have I worked through this? How have I fleshed this out? Um, but the first question, I wanna, I wanna start with the last question that you said, Evan, and it's actually the, it's the most direct one and the greatest pushback. So we're saying um, when it comes to cultural, uh, understanding cultural context in a, in a passage, and there are two passages that are very, very specific when it comes to, there are only two passages when it comes to the idea of woman being quiet or like, I mean, the first Corinthians one is crazy because if we were to actually follow that, we would literally be saying that women, when you come into Door of Hope, we need you to not say anything. That's essentially, if you're just to take a wooden literal approach, that would be, that would be the approach. So the Timothy one is like one that t people grab a hold of more tenaciously because that one's more practical, it's more specific. We don't let a woman teach. Both of the passage have very extreme tones to them in, because they're, very, they're addressing what seemed to be a very extreme problem. Um, and, it, and so this question that came in was, why are there no female elders? Why, so is that just an area where we like, and the question that was posed was, uh, was this, um, and I thought, I thought it was interesting the way it was framed. Why can only men be elders? Is this something we don't question? Like, we don't question why God lets suffering continue. Lots of people do question that, by the way. I just don't think there's an adequate theodicy, but that's another conversation altogether. Or things just we don't seek further explanation about. Let me just state really clearly, 
The word elder is used 195 times in the Bible. Uh, never once in 195 times Old Testament, New Testament, does it ever used to describe a woman. Israel's history as God's people, God established that Moses was to, to grab men, leaders from among the tribes and to choose elders to lead the priesthood. Uh, Deborah is, a, is an, an anomaly in a time when Israel men were actually failing as leaders. Uh, and Deborah rose up to the occasion because God will do whatever he wants to do to accomplish his plan. And it was actually a rebuke to the failure of the male leadership. Uh, Deborah is an awesome character of just like a slap in the face. Like God's like, oh, guys, you don't want to do the job? I'm going to grab a woman and she's going to not only be a judge, but she's going to drive a stinking nail through the head of your enemy that you're too weak to even deal with. I mean, so Deborah is like, she's like John Wick, okay? And that's like not normal. Um, <laughs> this should be my next book. Deborah is like John Wick. Um, but it, but let's, let's talk through male leadership as a biblical precedent. First of all, priests. Throughout the history of Israel, men or women? Men. The disciples of Jesus, men or women? Men. He his inner 12, he chose 12 men. Now, some would say that it's because it's a continuation of, of it representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, whatever. This is, I'm, just, I'm just pointing out a fact. The scripture itself was written by, and the critics are right, it was written, they weren't right that they were white, but it was right that they were written by men. Uh, there wasn't, doesn't mean that there weren't prophetesses. Anna in, uh, in the gospels, uh, take, she prophesies over Jesus as a baby, uh, powerful passage. There's, pre, there's priestesses, there's prophetesses, there's, there's women used by God and the women that actually, and it was women who stayed by Jesus, not the 12 disciples uh, that he picked. There was the women that stayed close to the cross uh, where the guys all freaked out and ran away. So, and Jesus clearly had intimate, close um, relationships. And when I mean intimate, I mean deep friendships with Martha and Mary. Uh, and so he picked, he handpicked women to be a part of his leadership team, but he chose men to be disciples. Those, those disciples, or I should say, I'm sorry, apostles. Um, and those apostles, the apostles after, the, after so I'm just saying precedence in scripture actually means something. And even throughout human history, by the way, the egalitarian stance within the church is a relatively new thing. Uh, it, it is it, it has really come into uh, into existence um, most fully in the last 150 years, um, and so someone say, well, that's because women were always oppressed. Listen, I'm not here to talk about human history and the oppression of women by men. I think that we can go back to Genesis and say God said that that's going to be the result of the fall is that there will be conflict between the sexes. That's going to be a part of human history. So we can't ignore that. And there's going to be abuses of God's own authority structure. So we can't ignore that either. So just because someone abuses a structure that God created doesn't mean that it's a bad structure. It means that we have bad players in a good structure because it's not because sin is overriding rather than rather than men are called to be sacrificial servants that actually elevate the community, men and women. And so elders, once again, the precedence in the text every time it's first of all, elder, one of the tra translation 
the direct translation of elder is bearded one. Now I know that doesn't work so well in Portland, but generally we understand what that means. Um, and, and, uh, and so I just would simply say this, that this isn't one of those like gray areas. It's a consistent, it's not like we only have two passages. There is every reference to elder all 195 times. So that's like, it's pretty clear. Like that's, that's when biblical interpretation becomes simpler when you have more passages that continually hammer on the same point over and over and over again. Um, and, but when you have a text where there's only one or two proof texts, that's where you have to be more cautious in how you interpret because it's very dangerous to create an entire theological grid out of a single passage. So I hope that answers the question. I, I don't think you can argue around it. And so I'm actually shocked by my friends that do argue. And what they just simply say is the gospel, so here, by the way, how egalitarians land on this position is one verse. It's essentially one verse. And it is, it is there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, um, Jew nor Gentile, all are one in Christ. And so they say that the, the, the completion of the work of Jesus on the cross, his life, death, and resurrection, and his ascension, ushers in a new reality in which there is no, no longer distinction between men and women um, or even or even race, but that Christ is the sole distinction. And so all of the old economy has passed away. But I believe that the truth of that is that there, there will be a time when there will not be distinction. We're, not, we're told in heaven that we will not be married, um, that, that we will be like the angels. Uh, and so I do believe there is a time coming when there will not that distinction probably will not be at play, but we're still in the economy of grace in a fallen world, and God is still using structures that we, I mean, we're, we still use elements and structures even of the Old Testament, obviously. So that we don't abandon the Old Testament because the New Testament has come, um, and because Jesus has come. And so I think that, for me, I think that that verse about all are one in Christ is not talking about an eradication of distinction between the sexes or even distinction in roles, but it is an eradication um, of salvation by works, uh, and it's about everyone is saved the same way. They're saved by Jesus. That's what I think the context of that text is saying, um, and there are plenty that disagree. So I'm going to answer that one. I want, I want you to answer this one, Brett. Um, do you think there is an importance or benefit for leaders in ministry to be married? Oh. A benefit? I absolutely think there is a benefit because marriage, I think personally, is a form of sanctification where you practice self-forgetfulness and through that you learn service. So, and also I think that applies to positions of authority and submission, not even in marriage. For example, elders are practicing authority through selfless and submissive leadership, and we are called to trust them. You can almost always trade submission with the word trust in the Bible, and that changes what authority means. Because is the people group or the person in authority trustworthy enough for you to put all your trust in them? And when you're married, that would be, an, a, you're working on that. Um, so you're play, that's playing out in real life. 
but I don't think it's, um, I, I don't think you have to be married to be working on sanctification in relationship. Mm -hmm. That can work in friendships, it can work in the workplace, and it can work in ministry. So I think there is a benefit to marriage um, because you are dealing with laying down your life for another person. It is real. It is very hard to be married. It is very hard to be a parent. That would be another relationship of authority and submission where the authority is literally laying down your dreams, your wants, your time, your desires for the benefit of someone else so that they can trust you and feel safe. And so being a parent, I think, puts you in the position of being able to offer that to a congregation. Being married helps put you in the spiritual place of being able to offer that because you're practicing it. Um, but, you know, some of the greatest heroes of the faith are just are single people who lived in complete submission to Jesus. And that's how they learned it. And they went out and changed the world. Like Mary Yee was never married. And she's changing villages in India. Yeah. So, yeah, I think primarily it's under the umbrella of submission to Jesus. Yeah, and I think that specifically the question around, we have single, um, single pastoral staff um, in... in uh, Wait, do we only have one single person now in our pastoral team? John C. So we have an available, we have an available pastor. <laughs> an available pastor, this available pastor. Um, <laughs> I do think he's dating someone. If you're here, I'm sorry I haven't met you yet, um, but he's wonderful. Uh, but I think when it comes to elders, uh, because I do think that elder, we've never had a single elder and, and this is something we've wrestled through. We've even wrestled through, should elders be fathers, uh, which was a challenge. Seth Mercer was an elder for years and him and Anna really struggled to have kids. And he was, he act, it was him who raised the question, is it appropriate for me to be an elder with not being a dad? And I, I, I felt like that was, that's, I think the principle of character is saying, essentially like if they're, if they're a parent, you should look at, part of the qualification is looking how they, how they parent. How are they as a husband? So I, I've been a little more reluctant to be hard and fast on, on this, this particular question when it comes to elders. But I do think in, gen, in principle, the reason that, I, that we generally, and I even feel like the, the people that the congregation have suggested as elders are almost all, they've always been married. And I think one of the benefits of that is because it is a role that is held by men. Um, being married men uh, guarantees female input into the role of elder. Does that, would you agree with that, Mel? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's just, it's, so that's, that's, I think that's the benefit um, specifically for elders and why I think Paul specifically says that an elder is to be a husband of one wife. Um, so, uh, which we don't really have, that's not a question that comes up too often, but I did just get asked that question by a cabbie in Houston. He goes, how do you feel about multiple wives? And then I found out he was from a country and he goes, my father has three. And I go, how many, kid, how many brothers and sisters do you have? And he goes, I have 26. And I'm like, 
it's too much, it's too many, it's too many. He goes, how do you feel about that? I'm like, too many. And I'm like, more than one Darcy would kill me. Uh, and yeah, I'm like, no, one is plenty. One is, it's like an everlasting gobstopper. One is enough, one is enough. <laughs> Yes, I just compared my wife to an everlasting gobstopper from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, so, okay, what about this question? What, or, or oh, this is, this is good. Um, how does a mom know how to manage sacrificing time with her kids for time spent doing things like Bible study, volunteering, and service for others? You're a mama of a lot of littles, so this is obviously gonna create a limitation on how much you can do. Um, so yeah, speak to that. I don't know the answer to that yet. So <laughs> we're, um, I, we're wrestling with that right now. Um, I don't have a moral answer to what is right and what is wrong, to how much uh, my responsibility is at home, I should abandon. I know that like Evan works when I have something to prepare, like to prepare for tonight, or if I have a women's event to prepare for, or I'm gonna be teaching a First Corinthians Bible study over the summer, that's gonna take a lot of preparation. Um, Evan just does everything with the kids. He does dinner and bedtime, and I just run up and say, Good night. We have to sit down and schedule in time that I can study um, because we have four kids. Um, our youngest is almost two and our oldest is 10 and they require a lot of care, especially our toddler literally needs supervision at all times. We can't just like put on a show even um, because she's a toddler. Um, so I honestly, to be honest, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So I, and I'll speak to that too. I think for both men and women, when you have children, I, I sacrificed my music career at its peak. I mean, telecast, we had the top 10 single for six months in Christian radio. We were, we were basically established to become one of the bigger bands in the industry. And at the peak of our success, Darcy called me and said, I don't want to raise our son by myself. And there are, and I think that there are things that are worth sacrificing um, uh, and ministry should be sacrificed before your family <laughs> because your family is your greatest ministry. And so, so I think that, and I think Brett was wise to answer the question that way. Every family dynamic is different. We live in a different context. There was unbelievable benefit. It was extremely hard for us financially to make the decision for Darcy to be able to stay home. And it's always been hard financially. It's, Portland's an expensive city. Um, but we did whatever it took because we, had a, we held a conviction. But there are, I see couples out here that, have, that both work and have great kids. And, that, and so every, every couple's unique. And they, I think this is the beauty in the dynamic. There are certain things where I think we can go too far um, in, uh, in pushing and trying to apply what works for us on everyone else. And there's certain areas where scripture is, is more, it, it's silent. Where scripture is silent, what we have to use is spirit-filled wisdom. And everybody has different bandwidths. Darcy has a very small bandwidth. Um, unbelievably 
unbelievable depth and unbelievable ability to carry a lot of things, but emotionally she can get taxed real quick as a real extreme introvert. For her, her babies, I, I want to be there every day when they get home from school. I don't ever want to miss that. And that's, that's her conviction. But it would, we would both feel inappropriate to apply that to every person in this room because also we don't know what you're like some people just like it just requires both people work to actually live um, in a city like Portland so that's where I just think it's so important and that's why we also need each other as a church community to help carry that load and that burden into to family together um, in some ways and so um, so I appreciate your answer and I think it's I always the best teaching is is to, the teacher that's willing to say I actually don't know what it means here, so we're just going to move on. That, that, that's a good. That's I a good mean, one. I'm really in the process of learning, and there, <laughs> and uh, it might. I think it might be a hard lesson. Evan and I both have a tendency to say yes to everything, and we get really excited about stuff. And our bandwidth is very big, mm -hmm. um, and it takes us effort to cut stuff out. Yeah. Um, so. Anyway. And that's why you found Evan asleep on the bathroom floor one night. Because he has such a hard time saying no to anything. Evan, Evan is so chill that you would never know. It's like, you just, you just would never, I've never seen you sleep. I've only seen you lay in a bed once, Evan, 13 years. I mean, we've gone on retreats together. I actually, I racked my brain the other day. Never seen him sleep. Never seen him even nap. He's walked in on me napping multiple times. <laughs> almost every day at one o'clock um, <laughs> when I was in the office every day. Uh, but yeah, the, people are different. Darcy's the opposite, like her band was like, she will first say no to everything before saying, when I got her to come here and do the thing on hospitality, we were in like serious fights the day of. And she's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't wanna do this, this is crazy. Why are you having me talk? I mean, it was like, she was great, but it was just like, she just, <laughs> her threshold is much, much different and that's why this is a spirit-filled wisdom part, and, and I think it's a beautiful thing uh, when couples work through that um, on a spiritual level and just like, what does Jesus want us to do, and how can we do it well, and how can we do it, and the gauge is, can I do it, and how will it affect my family? Um, and then uh, this is the last one, and I don't want to just speak because this is a hard question. Um, what does the man being the head look like when he is not a believer? and doesn't support what the wife believes God is wanting her to do. And I'm just gonna, I feel like it's important, and Brett, I want you to add to it if there's anything, but this is, this, I just simply would say this. There's a principle in scripture when it comes to obedience to Jesus. And obedience to Jesus actually overrides even your spouse. Um, and if you have a spouse that says, you cannot follow Jesus, you can have nothing to do with Jesus, then, then you have to, you, you choose to follow Jesus. So what Paul would say, obey the, this is this, it's the same principle that you would say with, with government. Obey the government authorities in the land. Did the church always obey everything that the government demanded? No, it didn't. Um, and what Paul would say is live peaceably. So walk in obedience so that you can experience peace. But if that obedience um, to Jesus is put into question, then you need to be willing to continue to obey the laws of the land by accepting the consequences of refusing to submit to the law that violates your faith. So what the, what the Christians did not do in the early churches rise up in, in war to try to overthrow a government that was pushing on 
their faith. Instead, they submitted to the laws of the land, but they refused to submit to that which caused them to deny Jesus. So when it comes to an unbelieving spouse, what Paul encourages spouses to do is stay with the unbelieving spouse. Your very presence in that home actually brings sanctification to the home. There's something actually supernatural that happens. But if that spouse, like this is why if I talk, like you aren't being a good submissive wife if, you're, if you let your husband beat you. That's not, that's not God's plan. That, that, that it, it actually overrides, there is, there is a call to be of protection of human life and dignity that, um, that should be honored in scripture. So you have to begin to balance in wisdom. If you have a spouse that actually is pushing against your very faith and calling into question and attacking that, uh, like I've told, I've told, I've told uh, couples before, I'm like, I'm not comfortable telling you to get a divorce, but I'm more than comfortable to say you should separate until that person gets their stuff together and that you do not have to deal with, with abuse from alcoholism or drug addiction. And I mean, there's been, and I've told that to more than one person, um, and sometimes it does end in divorce. Um, but I think that honoring Jesus is the, is the supreme thing. And part of honoring Jesus is staying at times in difficult situations, but not if it compromises your faith in Jesus or actually is putting your life in danger. And that, and that, so it's a complex, that's a complex question. And whoever wrote that, that question, I, I encourage you to reach out and, and meet with me um, or meet with a pastor, meet with Brett. But the, I would say the first and foremost, just make sure you have good support around you. And because I don't know the details of what's being asked here. Um, and I don't know if it's just, you know, like that I'm a Christian. <laughs> um, that's different than he's actually being hostile and getting aggressive or making demands um, or being abusive. I, so there's, there's a lot of questions that aren't filled in there for me to be able to answer that, but I would just simply say that our loyalty to Jesus um, is supreme. Um, and, and that's, um, and, but part of the loyalty to Jesus is often staying in relationships that aren't fun <laughs> too, um, because we're called to love people, including our enemies. Um, and so, and it's a sad thing when a spouse becomes an enemy. Um, but we're still called to love them. Uh, so, uh, so I'd like more information, but I just felt it was important to answer that. That was great. Okay, good. You guys, you, I thought you were gonna just rail us with the question. Maybe Evan just weeded out a lot of questions. Maybe some of you were like, I don't like it. I don't like what you're saying. Um, but I appreciate, and, and, and I want you guys to know too, if you hold a different view or there's something that's rubbed you wrong, or just you've been, you believe this your whole life and now you're being asked to believe something different like any one of the elders myself brett we would all be happy to sit down and talk with you and i just encourage you if this is a challenging conversation like that we're because here's the the two challenges some people say you've gone too far and other people say you have not gone far enough <laughs> and you'll never be able to please everybody and this is where i promise you this has been years of careful scriptural examination, deep prayer, and a deep commitment to honor both men and women in the church. Um, and, and that I can promise is our heart. Whether you like where we land or not, that's our heart. So with that, Brett, would you close us in prayer? Sure. You know, isn't she awesome? <laughs> yeah. Lord, we thank you 
that you've brought us together tonight. And my supreme and one prayer is that we would remember the very thing that has brought us together as brothers and sisters in Christ is to come under your supreme authority. You have given us life. You have saved us. You call for unity, and we want to give that to you. I pray that no one would leave here feeling attacked or um, upset, but that you would open our hearts to be able to have hard conversations with one another that are even almost exciting because you are good, the Bible is awesome, you've called us into a family and it is exciting and exhilarating to look for truth. I pray you give us wisdom. I pray we learn to love and pursue wisdom. And I pray that we submit to your will, Jesus, and become a light in this city. Amen.